Hi friends, my name is Ryan Cagle and you are listening to the Lessons from Dead Guys podcast, a work of exile liturgy. Today is our fifth installment of the Lessons from Dead Gals, which if you've not been listening is not a rebranding of the show, but a special Eastertide dedication specifically to the women who have faithfully rebelled against the powers and principalities of the world and church for the sake of the cause of Christ and the kingdom of God. We've traveled all over the globe and through space-time seeking the lessons that we can learn from these women and how we can be shaped by them through the Spirit. From prophets in drag to rebel ex-slaves and desert mothers, we have seen the face of God in their lives and their theology. We have learned that from the onset of this thing we call Christianity, that there have always been women who have been working and smashing the patriarchy and bearing the weight of the church forward. Often it's been men, while men have been arguing theology and philosophy and, and using these all these you know big-headed ideas on a, on a higher level, it's been the women who have had their hands to the plow, who have been tending to the poor and the needy and the oppressed, and today's lesson is no different. Today we're going to explore the life of a saint who only recently joined the church triumphant and her radical ideas that exist at the intersection of liberation, womanist, and grassroots praxis theology. Her name is Ada Maria Isazi Diaz, and she was born in Havana, Cuba, of one of eight children to a Roman Catholic family that eventually would go on to f- to flee uh, Castro's Cuba and become political refugees in America, landing in Louisiana. After arriving in the United States, Isazi Diaz would go on to join the Ursuline Order in St. Rosa, California, in pursuit of becoming a nun in the Catholic Church. They sent her to undergraduate studies uh, in college, and after she finished her degree, uh, they sent her, dispatched her for three years to Peru to be a missionary. After in 1969, though she would she would come back to America after the missionary work in 1969. Before taking her final vows in the order, uh, she would leave and become involved in the Women's Ordination Conference, which is a conference that supports and fights for the ordination of women as Roman Catholic priests. After stints as a teacher, she would eventually go on to enroll in Union Theological Seminary, where she earned a doctorate in theology in 1990 and eventually became the Professor Emerita of Ethics and Theology at the Drew University in Madison, New Jersey. Her studies and involvement in the feminist theological movement led her to begin to develop a theology from the perspective of Hispanic and Latin women in the United States. This led to a a development of a theology that she would call Muhistera theology. This is a theology that included the religious experiences, practices, and responses to the daily struggles of life from Hispanic and, and Latin women. In 2007, she became an unofficial church pastor after the Archdiocese of New York closed Our Lady of Angels Catholic Church in Eastern Harlem, which was the church that she adopted while she attended seminary. A group of parishioners began uh, holding protests and prayer meetings and vigils outside the building, but eventually um, it still... It still closed despite their all their work, and it became a neighborhood institution where Asazi D, Dr. Asazi Diaz delivered sermons almost every week until her death from cancer in 2012. She remained so faithful to the church, and it's a challenge to me. 
It's a challenge to my privilege because in days past, even recently, I get so quick to want to abandon the title Christian because of how murky that term is. Because there are people in this world who claim to be Christian that I cannot say we worship the same God. And so I have this tendency to want to walk away from that term. But she remained faithfully Catholic. She remained faithful to the church and to the language and the creeds and and the ways of the church, despite the things, the fact that they didn't consider her. Um, worthy to be a priest because she was a woman, just because she was a woman. So she remained faithful, and it, it's a challenge to me. So, in, you know, I had this tendency, instead of staying and fighting to keep the ship afloat, my gut reaction has been to jump ship and head for shore on my own. But the fact that she remained faithful just is just an amazing encouragement to me. And her life, I mean, her ideas, they, they caused her a lot of grief. I mean, people, um, she would be denied, uh, support, but because of her support for the, uh, you know, female priesthood, she would lose faculty invitations to lecture or be a part of events and be a part of Catholic, different Catholic, uh, events and institutions to come and speak on more than one occasion. And despite all of it, she remained faithful. And despite the fact that the Vatican never once acknowledged her suggestions, um, it's just insane to me that she stayed committed and it challenges my privilege and it, it challenges me it challenges me to want to seek a better future for the church instead of abandoning it, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. In last week's episode, I briefly mentioned intersectionality, and that's very important for this episode as well, because just like last week when we talked about Sojourner Truth, um this episode where it, it's it's so important. Feminism is largely the product, uh, the project of white Western culture. And just like in Sojourner's Day, like we talked about last week, it lacked and so often does a depth that includes the voices from other ethnicities and cultures. This, this whole thing in part led to Dr. Asazi Diaz to conceive of Muharista or womanist theology to distinguish her ideas from those of feminism, which she, which she said was a term that was rejected by many in the Hispanic community. She wrote in 1989 that because they consider a f- feminism a preoccupation of white Anglo women, and she hoped that Muharism, which she considered a spiritual branch of the reform movement known as liberation theology, would help delineate the special identity shared by poor Hispanic Catholic women. She would go on to explain Muharis to theology this way in a piece featured in the Christian century. To be able to name oneself is one of the most powerful abilities a person can have. A name is not just a word by which one is identified. A name provides the conceptual framework and the mental constructs that are used in thinking, understanding, and relating to a person. Hispanic feminists have been consistently marginalized in white Anglo-feminist community because of our critique of its ethnic and racial prejudice and lack of class analysis. At the same time, we have insisted on calling ourselves feminists. We have been rejected by many in the Hispanic community because they considered feminism a preoccupation of white Anglo women. A Muharista is one who struggles to liberate herself, who is consecrated by God as proclaimer of the hope of her people. Muharista is one who knows how to be faithful to the task of making justice and peace flourish, who opts for God's cause in the law of love. In the Muharista, God revindicates the divine image and likeness of women. Muharista is called to gestate new women and men, a strong people. 
Muharistas are anointed by God as servants, prophets, and witnesses of redemption. Muharistas also will echo God's reconciling love. Their song will be a two-edged sword, and they will proclaim the gospel of liberation. A collection of her essays was published in 1996 titled Muharista Theology, a theology for the 21st century. Ada Maria's work offers an introduction to offers us an introduction into Latina feminist theology. The book is deeply informed by her Cuban roots, and unlike most traditional academic theological resources, she she spends much time opening up about her struggles and the specific experiences and, and things she's had go on in her life. And this opens up a way for her to connect with the reader on levels that traditional, purely academic works do not. In the book, she argues that action is fundamental to academic theology, but also that without it, theology is ultimately not authentic. Ada Maria defines herself as an activist theologian who understands that theological ta- she understood the theological task is ultimately liberative in nature. The book was published at a time when womanist or African-American feminist theology was becoming more widely read, and the term mujerista was a way to bring the struggles specifically of Hispanic and Latina women to the table. She put heavy emphasis on the, on that theology separated from praxis was useless. And this is something that I just find so captivating. And it, it shouldn't be because we spend so much time with like philosophy and theology and all these ideas about God that we were up in the clouds somewhere when in actuality praxis and being practiced in the world, this theology, if it's not practiced, it's useless. And this was something that was very, you know, uh, identifying of liberation theology. And it's with the more of these women that I read, it's, it's been foundational to the way their theology is not separated from action. And, and she put a huge emphasis on that, that theology separated from praxis was completely useless. Muharis, she said this, Muharistas are increasingly aware that any attempt to separate action from reflection is false and evil. The physical participation of Hispanic women in programs and action is often sought, but they are seldom asked to be involved in deciding or designing content. Hispanic women are seldom invited to reflect on the reasons and motivations for their actions, but Muharistas will always insist on the need to be actively involved in the reflection moment of praxis. Without reflection, there is no critical awareness and therefore no possibility of self-definition and liberation. One of the most pervasive themes of Muharista theology is the preferential option for the poor and oppressed. The preferential option is based on the epistemological privilege of the poor because they can see and understand what the rich and privileged cannot. It is not not that the poor and oppressed are morally superior or that they can see better. Their epistemological privilege is based on the fact that because their point of view is not distorted by power and riches, they can see differently. The epistemological privilege of the poor should be operative in a very special way in the theological enterprise. Muharista theology encompasses the way grassroots Hispanic women understand the divine and grapple with questions of ultimate meaning in their daily lives. Theological reflection cannot be separated from theological action. Therefore, Muhistera Muhistera theology is a praxis which consists of two interlinked moments, action and reflection. Muhistera theology is a doing of theology that does not place reflection and articulation above action. Neither does Muhistera. 
Muharist to theology see the theological enterprise as a second moment following the praxis for all action at the moment that it is taking place as a reflective quality. Because Muharist to theology is a praxis, it is therefore the community as a whole which engages in theological enterprise. I love it, right? I love it. So she, she talks heavily about this idea that we cannot separate the two. And it's like most of her theology targeted, targeted the, the privilege of academic theology that, you know, we, it's in the seminary levels. It's in the books and the libraries and the academic discourses. But if it's separated from praxis, if it's separated from the people on the grassroots, if it's separated from the poor and the oppressed and then marginalized, then it's, it's worthless. It has no value for the world. It doesn't. What does it mean if we we can articulate the mysteries of the Trinity, but we still have yet to go and seek the benefit and the health of the poor and the needy and the marginalized? What what good does it do for us to understand to be able to approach scriptures with all these great you know hermeneutical approaches, but still never be able to see Christ and the poor and the marginalized and work for their liberation? So the two are completely intertwined. And she, she, she called for a radical reorientation of church philosophy that was deeply embedded in this grassroots experience of the oppressed and marginalized. She argued that we need to approach the scriptures from the perspectives, from their perspectives, if we truly want to see God in the kingdom clearly. The struggle of the marginalized, in, in this case specifically the experience of Hispanic women, is the starting point for how we should interpret and appropriate the Bible, which is huge. Because I just I got to thinking just last week I was thinking about people um, through Lent and through Holy Week and Christ being crucified, and I know we're several weeks past it. You know we're we're deep into Easter tide, but I was just thinking about it. How many times I read the New Testament as a white middle class man. And I see myself, who do I see myself in the story as? And I realize that I never see myself as Rome. I never see myself as part of the dominant culture, which is telling of my privilege. And I, I, and I, got to, I just made a post on Twitter. I was like, you know, it, white, white dominant culture would do well to realize when we open up the Bible, we are not the Jews. That we are not the disciples. We are not the people of Jesus. We are the other. We are the dominant culture. We're the people who put Jesus on the cross. And it is from that perspective and that lens that we need. We need to be able to see from that th- that so our privilege can be deconstructed and we can see the poor for who they truly are, and that's Christ. And so her ideas about praxis and theology and seeing the scriptures and, and God through the eyes of the marginalized and specifically, like I said, Hispanic women is so needed. We need those perspectives and we don't, we don't need them to just, and one thing that happens and it, they create, you know, she named her theology so that it could be recognized. But at the same time, what we've done, white dominant culture, what dominant culture does is that we keep it in that category. Well, that's, Latin theology, that's black theology. You know, James Cone, oh, he's a black liberation theologian, but we're going to talk about this guy over here because that's, you know, we're not worried about that. But the thing is, is that we don't call N.T. Wright a white whatever theologian. And it's because, well, white Christians dominate the culture, but it's these people, it's the minorities, it's the people on the margins that have always shaped the church in, in the best ways. 
that have embodied the gospel in ways that we that I can't even conceive. And that's why I need people's works like Ada Maria Asazi Diaz's works and her thoughts because they're challenging to me and they, they force me to recalibrate the way I see the gospel and the way I interact with people around me. Without their voice, we're not seeing God in his fullness, and we're not going to. And as long as theology remains a purely academic enterprise, we won't ever. It'll just be ideas. It'll be concepts, words, structures, con- you know, these constructs. But she championed that those who are academically trained in theology need to liberate theology. Which I thought was a really cool concept. Like she talked about using words, like she talked about using these big theological terms on a grassroots level with people to bringing it not down to their level like a superiority, but making it available to them and, and liberating these terms like eschatology so that people on a grassroots level could grow and take those things and teach her and teach the people around them. And so we need to liberate the people who are academically trained or knowledgeable in theology need to liberate theology by becoming theological technicians, which is a, a thing that she another term, I guess, or idea that she she coined who can facilitate by participating fully in a community of struggle. Much of her work argues that our theological articulation should therefore also be birthed by the community, discussed by the community and made understandable to the community. Her ideas deconstruct our hierarchies. This concept that all theology must be truly for it to ever be a full expression of God or a full expression of the gospel has to be done in community. It has to be done in a place to where it can be discussed, it can be wrestled with, it can be disagreed with from people that have doctorate degrees and from people who have never stepped foot in anything but a Sunday school class a day in their life. And I think, I think the thing she's advocating for in her work is something that we desperately need. Because I, I don't know, and, and then, I know this is out of context, but the scriptures say that my people die for lack of knowledge. And it's not the people in the marginalized that are, you know, that are suffering. I mean, they are suffering. I'm not saying their marginalization is not suffering, but it, the people that are academically uh, educated, that are a part of this upper tier of Christian thought, they're lacking. They're, they're missing the most pivotal and key parts of their theology. And it, it happens when we do it outside of community and it's purely this a- academic articulation. And I can't, I mean, I can't say I disagree with her. And as someone who's not been formally trained in theology, but has self-studied a ton, I believe that theology should not just be left up to those who can afford to pay for it or who read enough books. Her, her whole thoughts on practice and theology made me think of something that Peter Rollins said. And I don't want to take away from what she said uh, by this, but it, it was just uh, kind of a different way of putting it. He said that salvation, he, he said something about salvation evangelism that really struck me. He, he talks about it, that we don't go to the poor to feed them, but to be fed. And that we don't go to those on the margins to save them, but to be saved ourselves. It's not the poor and oppressed that need saving. It's us who need saving. And we have these theological concepts. We have church. We have all these things. But at the end, when it's all said and done, until it comes down to being a part of a struggling, a community that struggles with God and wrestles with God and, and grows together, then we still need saving. We're still out in the weeds somewhere 
you can articulate all the great, I mean, you can quote, quote in the Greek and the Hebrew and the Aramaic all day long, but if you're not a part of theological articulation on a grassroots level with people who are living the struggles of life, you'll never see the gospel clearly and we'll never see God clearly the way that has been given to us in community. And what I think maybe Martin Luther King uh, Jr. would call the beloved community, right? So it's kind of, I've seen some of that in some of her writings. That this community grassroots aspect is so vital to the life of the church and how we understand God and relate to the world around us. So her life and her works are a challenge. And I, I'm i going to read more of her stuff. I've been like just looking up like religiously all links and, and trying to find books and uh, places where essays are featured in in collections and things like that because it's a challenge to me as a white middle-class man her life her voice her perspective challenges me and pushes me to be a better follower of jesus it pushes me to be a better christian even when i don't want to claim that term and so I hope that maybe that through this you'll be pushed to check check some of her work out and you'll be able to be pushed and look at your bookcase and see how many people on your bookcase are white people, specifically white men, and think, how can I change this? I've been trying to make it a practice to read as many books by non-white people and by women as possible these last couple years. And it's been such a life-giving practice, a discipline. And it's not something, it shouldn't even be something that we have to consciously decide to do. But in our culture, it is because, well... We, have, we lack an intersectionality. We, we lack a depth of vision that all these people radiate um, the image of God into the world. And it's oftentimes not conscious, but we still do it. So I encourage you to look at your bookshelf, look at your Kindle, and see where you might need to focus more of your time on. Because guess what? There's, there's plenty, <laughs> and no disrespect, because some of my the greatest influences theologically in my life have been white men and I'm not I'm not ashamed of that but when my bookshelf is primarily all white men and very few black or Hispanic or Asian or, or Native American voices or in the very few female voices that that's telling of the kind of person that I am and it's telling of my blind spots and my privilege and so maybe through through her through her writings and through writings of the people like her that are on the margins who are working for the margins we can learn to see the gospel more clearly and learn how to interact with the world around us in better more robust faithful ways that's that's what I'm hoping for. After reading some of her stuff, that's that's what I'm I'm praying that God would open my eyes to the things I can't see, the the perspectives that are completely foreign to me because of my place in society and because of my skin color and because of my socioeconomic status, that I would learn to see from the margins, from the people in the margins. And so may we be liberated from our dominant culture. May we be liberated by the gospel that exists in the struggle of life on the margins. May we be saved by those who we think need saving. May we be fed by those who we think we should feed. May we be redeemed by those who we think need redemption.